Schools are changing every day. How do we map where these changes come from and gain critical perspectives to navigate this terrain? After all, we are not alone in the challenges and opportunities we face. This is Joe, John, Jennifer, Roberta, and Michael with If School Walls Could Talk, a podcast that helps learning communities gain broader perspectives on their work. Hey, Michael. Hi, John. I wanted to tell you about this meeting that I was in last week. It was after school, and I was in a meeting with a a number of other colleagues. And about halfway through the meeting, I started to to lose track of what we were doing um, or where we were going. I uh, there were there were a lot of decisions that were trying to be made, and the pace was pretty quick. Um, a lot of excitement, a lot of confusion, and I I didn't say anything at the time, um, I, even though I was having this experience that wow, this is going really fast, and I'm not sure uh, where we are right now. The following day, I am talking with a colleague who was also in the meeting, and it turns out that she had the same exact experience, um, that she was also lost. And we had this realization that neither of us said anything at the time. We didn't try to redirect or say, hey, could we slow this down a little bit? But we both sat through this meeting being confused. And this totally reminded me of the Abilene Paradox. Oh, uh, yeah, that's the famous organizational psychology story about the family that goes on a road trip. Yeah, that's it. I think we should tell the story. So there's a story called the Abilene Paradox. A family is sitting on their porch in Texas. In Coleman, Texas, which is like a really small town. Uh, it's really hot, it's dry. And they were sitting around on the porch. Doing not much of anything. Drinking cold lemonade, playing dominoes, trying to ignore the oppressive heat. One of the family members, the father-in-law says, hey, let's go into town uh, to have dinner at the cafeteria. Yeah, why not? Sounds like a good idea. And while on the surface that seems like a compelling idea, Abilene is hours away, over 100 miles. They all jump in the car. It's a miserable summer afternoon. No air conditioning. And what they subject themselves to is a long drive through a dust-ridden landscape to eat... Pretty awful. Disgusting. Terrible food. Uh, Just nothing, nothing is good about this trip. They jump back in the car, no air conditioning. People are sweating. And they drive on back. And they, you know, step back onto the porch and someone says... Did we have a good time? And there was just crickets. Like, there was just absolute silence. And finally, one person pipes in and says, like, To be honest, it was so hot. I couldn't bear it. And that food was awful. And someone else was like, yeah, I didn't really have a good time either. That food was terrible. Why did we go? Whose idea was that? Everyone was like, it wasn't my idea. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't my idea. Um, what was the point of moving um, into Abilene when we knew that cafeteria food was going to be awful? But no one had mentioned that. Everyone just went along. And why? That's the Abilene Paradox. Well, John, the Abilene Paradox definitely reminds me of a lot of meetings that I've been in, too. And I think that's a pretty common occurrence amongst a lot of teachers and educators and staff that work at schools, is that we sit in a lot of meetings and we are part of a lot of good ones and a lot of mediocre ones and maybe even some bad ones. In this process, we interviewed about 15 different people, asking them about what makes a good meeting, what makes a bad meeting. 
And it turns out that people feel quite strongly about this topic. <laughs> they do. And, and those feelings and the experiences um, and the issues that come up from meetings were really similar across the board, whether you're a principal in a meeting or a second grade teacher in a meeting or a facilities manager in a meeting. It all seemed really similar. A lot of people really enjoy that sort of just collaborative discussion. And I am much more of the, like, let's just get some decisions made in this meeting so we're not ever having to put this stuff on the agenda again. And so that meeting just kind of devolved into people saying, like, I'm feeling this way, I'm, un I'm unhappy, and then we ran out of time. When I am not clear about why we are meeting, what the outcome with no clear agenda. That is 45 minutes of my life I'm never getting back. Some of the worst meetings are, you know, we're trying to get something talked about and, and there's no engagement whatsoever. There's a meeting on the calendar and so everyone comes together for that meeting. You leave the meeting really feeling like you, you had lost two hours of your life. No matter what kind of meeting you call, everybody always has 10 other things that they're thinking about that they need to get done. That was a complete waste of time. In search of solutions and resolution, we spoke with Derek Kennerak from Catlin Gable School. Derek is the dean of faculty, and he is also a PhD candidate studying educational leadership at the Teachers College of Columbia University. He walks us through some what he calls stars to sail by when thinking about running or participating in a meeting. So out of our interviews with Derek, we arrived at three guiding principles that anyone can use when facilitating or participating in a meeting. They are putting energy into the group's formation and its purpose, articulate clear agenda and action items, and use access points to build trust amongst the members of the group. If we're in a group trying to achieve something, uh, whatever our goal is, I start with a few basic assumptions that the plurality of our combined wisdom and insight and our diverse perspectives will lead us to a fundamentally better outcome than having one or two people dominate it um, and have other people just say, well, let's go to Abilene. Group formation is really important. I think, uh, you know, it's going to be informed by our historical context together. So um, have we lived up to our promises in the past around those things mm -hmm. are an important subtext that often gets short shrift. It's important how we come together, uh, even if many of us have worked together before, uh, saying things up front like, who's going to make the final decision here? Is this a recommendation? Uh, what is our goal? What are our core values that we're trying to that we're trying to achieve here? The more clarity we have around those things, the more clear it is what the boundaries are for the space that we're going to play in, and then uh, eliciting norms and making it clear that they're living. We're going to revise them. We're going to affirm them, um, and making that pretty making that explicit is a is a way of increasing clarity for everybody. These are all ways that developmentally you can you can meet different adults at different ways of knowing, because. Clarity is one of the antidotes to all of it. So there are a couple things in that interview clip that stick out to me. And the first piece is what Derek talks about as the, the underlying assumption of why we meet. And he puts forth this really elegant description of, of why we have meetings. And the, the linchpin to it all is the assumption that we are better together than we are separate. So I, I really liked that, and I think that that's important to keep in mind when I'm thinking about forming a group and even telling people which parts of their skill sets and what access to wisdom do I see that they have. And, and that 
seems essential to group formation. The second piece that I really like too is when he's talking about clarity and about how clarity can solve so many of those Abilene paradoxes. My biggest critique of meetings I've been in would be unclear agendas. Mm. Uh, Sometimes the agenda is distributed at the very last minute. Uh, Sometimes the agenda is distributed and then we don't really have, we don't really stick to it or it gets hijacked and the person who's ostensibly chairing the meeting doesn't, you know, doesn't bring it back or, or, you know, bracket the discussion. That sounds really important, John, but, you know, we need to put that to the side and and make sure we, you know, talk about that another time because we really need to focus on X. Uh, You know, so those are some of the kind of common pitfalls. And another very common issue in the school of which I worked previously was, We'd, a meeting would end, but there wouldn't be clear action items. Who's actually going to take care of this thing that we just all identified was important? Mm, yeah. Um, when are we going to hear back from them? Uh, what you know? What What are the next steps? Who's ta- you know? Who's Who's going to do something about this? And without those steps, one of two things could happen: it doesn't really get addressed, or it does get addressed, but in a way that's opaque. Yeah. And so ultimately, people walk out with lower trust. Yeah. In the overall process. Talking about an agenda seems like such a basic part of running a meeting. It's it's so obvious. We all know that an agenda needs to be made. And yet the number of times that you show up to a meeting and you haven't seen the agenda yet or the agenda is unclear is pretty astounding. And when you kind of unpack what an agenda really is, you can you can start to think of it like that's the system that you're going to use to make coming together and gathering actually efficient. And it's it's kind of an agreement in and of itself. Like, this is our intent. This is what's going to happen. Um, and there's a part of it that feels to me like it really is about trust and culture. I love the work of Elena Aguilar, and she talks a lot about agendas and how to run meetings and the art of coaching and the art of coaching teams. And one of the things that she talks about is um, power and how you kind of have to be willing to interrupt power, both that of others and and that of yourself, in order to really stick to an agenda. And if you have someone who's going off the agenda and they happen to be someone who has a lot of influence, whether power by title or power by kind of who they are, um, that can totally derail a meeting. It's just a really huge thing that I think we think is so basic and and it's really complex. Um, I really like what Derek says about the the next steps and making sure that, um, you know, there's someone who's accountable for the action step. And you could even take it a step further and say, okay, is that person who's accountable for this action step? When are we going to hear back from them, as Derek says? But also, do they have the authority and the resources that they need in order to carry out that action? Sometimes you may assign something to someone or someone may take something up. In particular, teacher leaders do this all the time. They step up, they say like, I'll do that, I'll figure that out. And then two weeks into figuring that thing out, it's like, oh, I actually don't, I don't actually have the authority to do this that I thought I did. Or I need this person's authority and I have to lean on them. Or I need this resource and I don't have access to that person or that resource or that budget. And then things kind of get derailed from there. And it's really no fault of that teacher leader Um, they weren't set up for success from the start. So um, I would really like to see some agendas that include some timestamps, a person who's going to enforce the timestamps, a cultural willingness to be interrupted and let go of something that's happening in the moment, and then making sure that those action items are assigned to someone in such a way that they also consider as a group what authority and what resources does this person need to act on this agenda and to act on this item. Those are some really good points, Michael. And I think that 
I honed in on a few words and you talked about trust and culture and power. And I think that we can test a group's level of trust by not providing the group clarity and not providing the group with clear decision-making frameworks. And another thing that I think really tests a group's level of trust is how conflict is handled. So in this next clip, and, and under the umbrella of this third point that I think Derek hits home around needing to build trust within the group, is this idea of how we can reframe conflict into a positive dynamic within groups. Let's reframe conflict as a useful process by which we can combine alchemically all the things that we think and, and hopefully get to insights that we that none of us would have gotten to alone. So the most productive groups I've been a part of, we get to some kind of special place. It's built on top of other people's observations, other people's ideas, from learning and listening to each other in the moment, from granting kind of full faith and credit in other people's ideas being just as good as mine. Right? Those are some of the hallmarks of the most successful teams I've been a part of. And so in those situations, um, conflict might not even be the right word for it, mm. right? So if we have a norm around, we value everyone's contributions, we care more about the combined success of our ideas, then, we, then me disagreeing with your idea is a chance for us all to learn. Mm. If we can lower the power differentials amongst the groups, um, establish norms that help everybody feel like they can really contribute their best and most wildest idea, offer their half-baked critiques in a way that's about the work and not about each other. If we can establish some of those norms, um, then we can create a space where what would be conflict without those norms or what would be conflict in a different space can instead be like really productive work together. So I think that I think conflict is contextual. Um, and I think there's an interpersonal context. I think there's a, uh, a an organizational context, right? Like, what does conflict look like here? What's safe in our in our school is a big question. So there's also an intrapersonal context around how am I making meaning of the the ways I which relate to other people. How I see conflict is one of the main defining ways of moving through some different stages developmentally as well. So it's it's a lot of layers. So if you're going to try to make the Abilene paradox uh, not happen for your for your group, um, I think you've got different. Each of those layers are kind of different access points, right? different places where you could ask questions to say, how could we make this work better for us? So something I am taking away from what Derek just said is the power of norms and their relationship to the level of trust within the group. I think that groups with norms, like he said, can manage conflict in really creative and astounding ways, whereas Groups without norms, the conflict appears as just just as that, is that it's this person is disagreeing with me because they don't like me, as opposed to if there's a norm that talks about how you're going to disagree with another person uh, and you fall back on those norms during heated moments, it actually becomes this really creative, generative process as opposed to a, uh, a turf battle. So John, here's what I think I learned from this whole process. Um, when you're running a meeting, it's important to keep in mind that group formation is worth putting energy into. And if you start with the assumption that the group and the wisdom of the group is always going to be greater than the wisdom of an individual, you're in really good shape to start your meeting. And it's really helpful to make sure that everyone there knows not just what the purpose of the group is, but what their purpose is. I like the idea of saying, hey, I invited you to this meeting because I really value your perspective on early childhood education. And you can also ask, what do you think you have to offer in this situation? Another thing that I'm taking away is just how important a clear agenda and 
action items and who will own them is to a group's perceived level of trust. Like, can I trust that I'll show up to this meeting and and it will be clear what we're trying to do? Can I trust that the people will follow through with what they're doing? And can I trust uh, that we will leave the meeting knowing whose job it is to complete those things? Absolutely. And do they have the authority and resources to um, complete that action, I think is really important too. And as our final point, I really appreciated what Derek had to say about building trust through a range of access points. Yeah, and one of the access points that is highlighted is building group norms. Um, Norms help groups manage conflict. They allow members to share half-baked ideas. They allow people to understand how a critique might be received or given. Um, All of those things, I think, build trust. And and as we know, once groups have a sense of trust, they're able to accomplish a lot. So I wonder, John, if your school walls could talk, what would they say about your next meeting? Sure. So so if the walls are witnessing my meeting, uh, I would like for them to say that group seemed intentionally formed and everyone understood why they were there. There was a clear agenda and people left with certainty over what they needed to accomplish and what resources they needed to do that. And that group spent time developing their group norms. And what looked like conflict was actually really creative and generative discussions. We hope this podcast will spark conversation and action. See our discussion guide for other questions and topics to ignite movement with your own community. 